From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you've been around a teenager lately, it's no surprise to you that cell phones are a big part of their lives. According to a study by Common Sense Media, more than 80% of U.S. teens have access to a mobile device. One concern for many parents is what type of information their teens are finding online, including access to pornography. On today's program, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine joins us as co-host. We'll discuss how to talk to your teens about sex with two Mayo Clinic experts. Also on the program, how to choose the best course of treatment for ovarian cancer. And asthma in adults. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Today's children are growing up in an age where technology and screen time are a part of life. Many teenagers have access to the Internet right in their pockets. And while the cell phone can be used to stay connected to friends, it can also be used to explore the web away from the watchful eyes of parents. One area of concern for parents of teenagers is access to pornography. How big of a problem is it? And what effects do pornography have on the teenage brain that's still developing? Joining us in studio to discuss are Mayo Clinic psychologists Dr. Jennifer Wenzel and Dr. Dagoberto Herrida. Great to have you both here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This is exciting. Well, this is a topic that when I brought it up, a lot of people around the table went, ooh, we should probably talk about that, but how do you do that? And I think having both of you here is a great way to get us started. What What is the effect that pornography has on teenage brains? Because they are still developing, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think what we've found in the literature that we've looked at is that we still don't quite know. There's not any studies that are out there specifically looking about pornography and its impact on developing brains. What we do know, however, is that um, because children are still getting used to kind of being autonomous and having difficult conversations, it's the most important time to start setting a framework for having difficult conversations that are comprehensive and that are not shame-based. It's definitely a different day and age. Literally, teenagers now do have access 24 hours a day, and I think that's a huge bridge for parents Mm -hmm. to make what that access to pornography means to kids. Yeah. Well, and you're certainly right. Humans have created explicit depictions of nudity and sex since the beginning of our species. You can actually see this in cave paintings, amazingly enough. Um, And we certainly know that every new technology has been adapted for sexual purposes. Cameras were used for this, video cameras after that. Um, Online chat rooms back in the 90s were used for sexual content. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of our technologies have been driven by sexual purposes, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. Um, I'm also thinking of the new Snapchat and other apps that our teenagers are likely to be using and very often more familiar with those than we are as adults. In ways that we are just really not even aware of. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned, uh, Dr. Heredia, yeah. kind of thinking about the framework for the discussion. Mm-hmm. of And so kind of how do we do that as parents? And as, you know, I'm a family doctor. I see kids. I see teenagers. And what is a good way to kind of start with the discussion about, look, all of these things are, these images are often quite normal, but some of them 
or perhaps not and is normal even a word that we should be using? Mm -hmm. I think that the most important kind of start point for us is to tackle the stigma and taboo that exists around having conversations about sex and sexual health. So I think that in our generation, we will always contend with some degree of taboo that's placed on pornography, but we can make a concerted effort to challenge the taboo that exists in the conversations we have with children. One thing that can be really, really helpful is to ask open-ended questions. Um, move away from lecture-style discussions and move towards conversations where you're getting a sense for what the child is seeing, the platforms that they're using on their um, cell phones or tablets, um, and also have the conversations be as often as possible and as early as possible. How early is early as possible? I am certainly a fan of comprehensive, developmentally, and age-appropriate sexual education, and this becomes a piece of that. Um, that is not something that we generally see in our public school systems, but is something that parents absolutely can contribute to. Um, we're seeing more and more research resources out there in the world to help parents with these conversations. And as a certified sex therapist and somebody who works in sexual health, this is a conversation that I hear a lot from the patients and clients that I work with, where they have struggled with their own kind of sex negativity and sexual shame, mm -hmm. and it becomes kind of a vicious cycle that gets passed down through generations of, well, my parents didn't talk about this, or it was explicitly sort of a negative thing to talk about sex, and so I don't know how to start those conversations with my children. And so we don't necessarily need to give them more detail. It, you know, there, I know right now there are so many parents that are saying, the more that we talk about it, the more curious they will become about seeking out pornography. I'm not going to say that they're not finding it. And they are by finding me it. talking yeah. about it, it puts the idea in their head. Yeah. I completely understand that's not the case. There is no empirical evidence to support that. Um, oh, you know, Dr. Heredita mentioned earlier that we have a real dearth in research on teenagers and erotica and pornography. And that's particularly true in this country. But there is a little bit of research out there coming from other countries, some in Europe, um, Asia. And what we're finding, what those studies are showing us is that parental monitoring and proactive conversations about sexuality and pornography and potential risk factors for stumbling across this, so to speak, on the Internet, um, actually help reduce rates that teenagers are going to go out looking for these things um, and can really impact the behaviors there. And so having these conversations is really critical, keeping in mind our own biases, right? And if we're feeling very negative and very shameful about these things, we have to be really thoughtful about how we're having this conversation. You've already said we're, we're still in this space where we're starting to learn uh, what the teenage brain is developing. What do we know about brain development in teens when it comes to sexuality, let alone pornography, but sexuality? What we do know is that it's normal for there to be some degree of sexual interest and sexual exploration very early. And because our younger generations are so connected, it makes sense that there would be some degree of exploration um, and, and information seeking online. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that in mind, it's important to kind of get a sense of what it is that the individual is, is accessing and providing um, correct information um, as needed or as necessary. Why there's is a, oh, I'm sorry, go I ahead. was going to say there's a word for this, actually, that we're talking around. It's um, or a phrase for this called porn literacy. Um, yes. So okay. This is something that, to a small degree, is starting to be researched here in the U.S., although, as we've said, there's a huge dearth in literature in this area. Um, but the idea behind porn literacy, like sexual literacy in general, is that we're giving teenagers and adults, quite frankly, the ability to think critically about the images that they're seeing or the video they're seeing in front of them. So they can think critically about the people that are being portrayed on those pornographic videos, 
Um, have they altered their bodies surgically? Is it, in fact, portraying a way toward orgasm that actually does not exist in real life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Multiple orgasms that might not be possible because there's been an editing break, right? You know, <laughs> constantly, you know, firm erections for hours and hours, things that really paint a really unrealistic picture of sex um, and sexuality, particularly with partners. Isn't there something uh, for all of you to be said, though, until they get to their mid-20s, all of those pathways are being hooked up. So whether it, you're playing a video game mm-hmm. that is extremely violent or whatever, that it affects the way that those pathways are hooked up. Is that how I understand? Yeah. It, certainly we know that brains don't fully finish fully developing until the early 20s. That, right. That's been pretty well um, established in neuroscience mm-hmm. and literature yeah. for a long time. But the impact of, of violent video games, you know, this is something that we hear a lot kind of in parallel to pornography, that this is going to cause violence or somehow yeah, lead they, to that. And the research is correlational in nature, and that's really important to keep in mind, right? Just because two things are related doesn't mean that one causes the other. And so there are other factors that we have yet to look into. You know, are there personality variables that maybe lead right. some folks to these types of materials versus other folks? I think this is where education around porn literacy really becomes so critical, right? Because children, teens, adolescents can be taught critical thinking skills, and hopefully they are being taught that as they're getting Mm -hmm. older. Um, That's part of their high school education for sure. Mm -hmm. This is an area that shouldn't be neglected when we're thinking about helping them build critical thinking skills. They need to be able to critically analyze what they're seeing because they are seeing it. Mm-hmm. We're talking about teens and pornography with two Mayo Clinic experts, Dr. Jennifer Vensel and Dr. Dagoberto Herida. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, myth or matter of fact, young men are showing up at the doctor unable to have intercourse because of erectile dysfunction. Is that a myth or a matter of fact? We'll find out. <laughs> You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozin. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with two Mayo Clinic psychologists, Dr. Venner, Jennifer Venzel and Dr. Degberto Herida. And it's time for myth or matter of fact. Myth or matter of fact. Young men who are coming into sex therapists with erectile dysfunction, is it because of pornography? Is that a myth or a fact? Uh, given the empirical evidence that we have right now, I would say myth. Um, what we are seeing in terms of the research that has been out there that has been published um, is that despite pretty emotionally charged media accounts and um, some self-help sites that are really sort of perpetuating this idea that pornography is causing erectile dysfunction um, or other sexual functioning concerns, particularly in men, interestingly, women are never included as part of that conversation. That's a whole other story. Um Despite some of those accounts that we're seeing in the media, the research evidence is not really backing this up. There are a few studies out there to suggest that men who report a preference for masturbating while they watch pornography over partnered sexual experiences are at higher risk for erectile dysfunction. That is not necessarily attributable to pornography, however. If you think about um, what is a common factor in erectile dysfunction, performance anxiety, difficulty being in your body and staying kind of focused in that moment sexually, um, it makes sense that if you are anxious in performing with a partner that you may prefer not to be with a partner sexually and may actually prefer solo stimulation through masturbation. So for our listeners at home, what you're clearing up is that that man may be having erections just fine within the setting that he prefers. Correct. And so we are labeling it as dysfunction because in the setting that perhaps the partner prefers, 
it doesn't work. Correct. And it is very common to see um, performance anxiety as a part of erectile functioning concerns. And so to attribute that directly to pornography or explicitly Mm -hmm. erotic media, uh, the research certainly hasn't bared support for that, at least as Mm -hmm. of this point. And when it is connected, um, what does happen is that, again, shame is attached to pornography or sexual interest or sexual exploration. And when that happens, that can be something that sets the stage for erectile dysfunction or premature or delayed ejaculation. Um, what's important, though, is to have remember that it's not about like you having caught your partner looking at porn or you having caught your teen looking at porn. It's more about recognizing that there's interest going on and there's uh, conversations to be had. Um, not necessarily shaming, uh, because that would just lead to kind of silencing and secretive behavior. Uh, during the break, we were talking about uh, the idea of viewing pornography leads teenagers uh, into early sex, early sexual situations, and you said it's actually the opposite if they're in good, uh, have got good sex ed. Yeah, so you know there is a lot of political controversy around this issue, and I you know don't bring up this topic to be political, but to talk more about the research that's out there and the research support and evidence for comprehensive, developmentally appropriate, age-appropriate sexual education. We know consistently that providing comprehensive sexual education, which includes porn literacy, mm-hmm. pornography literacy, and helping adolescents to think more critically about sexually explicit media. We know that that actually has outcomes that include delaying first sexual experiences. And we think that that's because they're actually feeling less um, sort of uh, like they want to take risks, that they are kind of curious, so they're just going to go ahead and do it and see what it is. Empowered knowledge. Right. Empowered, wonderful way to say Mm -hmm. that, yes. Um, One of the things that you mentioned that we should be sure to include in this conversation, it wasn't even on my list, on my radar, but it is the legal ramifications Mm -hmm of pornography for teenagers versus adults. So explain what you mean by that. Well, currently in Minnesota, there are no laws that exist that are specific to things like sexting. Um, But what we are seeing is an increase in um, litigation around um, creating and disseminating images that are produced by teens on platforms like Snapchat. So Snapchat, doesn't it just disappear? So how does... How is it captured? I mean, that might be a question our listeners have. Yeah, well, it can disappear, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes it does, but um, you can still take screenshots. And there are uh, softwares and other apps that Mm -hmm. exist to where you can take a screenshot, and it wouldn't let the other person know that a screenshot was being taken. And so, again, it's important to have age-appropriate and comprehensive sex education, but in a manner that also includes um, new technologies like Snapchat, TikTok, and so on, and also the limitations that exist around that. Parents have to take a tech literacy class in addition to their sex literacy (laughs) class. Well, what is important for parents to know here, as Dr. Heredia mentioned in terms of increased litigation, so we're seeing minors, adolescents, being charged with child pornography possession and distribution charges across the country because they have taken photos of themselves and sent it to you know, a partner. And so that's not illegal for an adult to do that, but it is illegal for a teenager to do it because then they unwittingly are trafficking in childhood pornography when it's a picture of themselves. That's how it's been interpreted, yes. And it's important here to recognize that public policy in the legal system has not caught up with our technology in this way. And so there's this huge gap in um, how these technologies and sexuality are interacting with minors and what the law is doing to sort of deal with those situations. Could you give us a quick, gentle, three-second three elevator speech that you have with a teen that you're seeing in your office about what's a great way to interact with technologies? 
a great way to interact with technology. Or, you know, I, I think that people probably perceive that they're fl- being flirtatious, perhaps how to be flirtatious in a safe way that is um, not only legally safe, but also sexually safe. Mm-hmm. I think having very, like, matter-of-fact discussions are what's key here. So letting the child know what the legal limitations are, um, what is going on nationally, but also making sure to not necessarily shame them mm-hmm. and let them know that you are a resource for information, you are a resource for strategies to stay safe online, and um, bring in resources you can find on different online websites that talk about how to set appropriate age-appropriate limits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just add to that, you know, reassuring for your teenager, your adolescent, that it's it's very normal to be having sexual experiences and sexual feelings, and it's normal to be exploring those And like adults, we have to sort of weigh the benefits and risks of Mm -hmm. doing that, whether that's actual sexual content or sending a sexually explicit photo or video to somebody. There are there are potential consequences there that are that can really last a long time. And so helping helping the teen and adolescent to kind of think through those risks and benefits becomes really important. When it comes to porn literacy, uh, we're talking about having a good comprehensive sexual uh, education class. Um, What would you want also to be included in that. So many things. So many things, yeah. <laughs> so I'll many let things. you each do one. Oh. I want us to all be mindful consumers, people who are critiquing the things that are being produced and things that are mm-hmm. being watched, keeping in mind that they could very easily kind of end up in at the hands of someone who is younger, who doesn't really have the information or the knowledge to really be able to um, put that information in the context. I would want to see um, consent being displayed, being normalized. So mm-hmm. there being a, a verbal agreement between individuals who are involving in a sexual, involved in a sexual act. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I would also add just on kind of a basic, where it maybe shouldn't be so basic, but it is level scientifically accurate information about anatomies and the fact that mm-hmm. bodies are diverse, right? If we can talk to our teens and adolescents about naming their different body parts. This is toddlers even. You know, mm-hmm. we can talk about vulvas and penises yep. and clitorises as perhaps they get older, right? Again, back to that age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate education. Excellent. Yeah. I just put in a plug for the series of books that's called you know, Free to Be Me. There's a series of kid books that are about both consent and sexual behavior and development that are really useful for the younger child. And I also think useful for the parent Mm -hmm. as you're trying to perhaps familiarize yourself with vocabulary or information that maybe you didn't get as a child or as a teen and think about how can I arm myself with the vocabulary that my kids might be seeing so I can just be open and and clear about what it is I want to say. This is really about critical thinking skills at the end of the day, and I think we get so wrapped up and maybe excited about the content of what we're talking about yeah, here. That's great at the end of the day, this is really about critical thinking skills and decision-making skills. We've been talking about teens and pornography with two Mayo Clinic experts. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic psychologists Dr. Jennifer Vensel and Dr. Dagoberto Herrera. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Shives joins Dr. Cozine as co-host. They'll discuss what factors influence outcomes for patients with ovarian cancer. And later on the program, asthma in adults. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Did you know your kid could have an eating disorder if he or she is extremely picky? Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a Mayo Clinic child psychologist who specializes in eating disorders, says it's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. It's basically extreme picky eating. The food repertoire of those who have it is so limited that they can't maintain their body weight and they have health issues. She says it can be a fine line, though, between normal childhood behavior and extreme pickiness. She says your kid's weight goes on a curve. If they fall off their curve, that's when you start to worry. And it doesn't matter, by the way, if their curve is at the 5th percentile, the 50th percentile, or the 85th percentile. As long as your kid continues to track where he or she has always tracked, that's healthy. But it can be a problem if your kid loses weight and falls off his or her curve. In that case, Dr. Lebo says, you don't want to make mealtime World War III. She says if suddenly you're setting up a power struggle and demanding that they have to eat and you keep telling them they have to eat, they have to eat, you're kind of dooming yourself. It can be even trickier for picky teens, so she suggests getting professional help. In the meantime, she says parents should do all they can to get their kid to eat more of anything. Dr. Lebo says parents should be challenging picky eaters to eat bigger portions of the foods that are on their list of what they want to eat. She says if your kid falls off the curve, nutrition is not as important at that point. Their body is not using nutrition the same way, so it's really about getting their weight back up before you start trying to get them to eat kale or something like that. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. My co-host, family physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Tracy McRae is away. Dr. Cozine, nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me with you. So we're going to talk about ovarian cancer. And we have previously talked about it. And we've talked about what a uh, difficult disease it is to treat. And the fact that it is fortunately relatively uncommon. Only about 22,000 women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer every year. But the prognosis is suboptimal, not as good as we'd like it to be. And in fact, less than 50% of women live for five years after they're diagnosed. How do doctors decide the best treatment? And what are some of the factors that influence the outcome in patients with ovarian cancer? Joining us in studio today is Mayo Clinic gynecologic oncologist surgeon, Dr. Amanika Kumar. Welcome, Dr. Kumar. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you back. So uh, ovarian cancer, we know that uh, many women present uh, with late-stage disease. It wasn't diagnosed early on when it might have been more curable, and why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges with ovarian cancer, and part of it is because it's rare. There's not a good screening test, so we've done lots of studies looking for screening tests similar to like what we do for mammography and breast cancer or colonoscopy for colon cancer, pap smears for cervical cancer. But for ovarian cancer, there's not a good effective screening test. And the second issue is there's not a lot of symptoms. So the symptoms that people have are really vague. And I think this presents a really big diagnostic challenge for people like our primary care doctors, Mm -hmm. um, where patients come in and they have vague complaints like abdominal pain, bloating, Sometimes they get full kind of early. And who hasn't had that symptom over the last month? And so trying to distinguish 
you know, I, I kind of in some ways have the easy part where they already come to me with a diagnosis. But if you're a family care doc or a primary care doc and you're seeing this patient, you have to figure out, is this the problematic kind of abdominal pain or is this just normal daily abdominal right. pain? And when they come to see me, they're usually pretty undifferentiated and but worried about ovarian cancer because they do hear about this sort of statistic that, you know, fewer than 50 percent of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer live for five years after the diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about those statistics. Why is it so grim? Yeah, so at the end of the day, even though we do have some treatments that are effective and we can usually, but not always, get patients into remission, because of the late stage of diagnosis, we have disease that's usually spread throughout the abdomen, sometimes outside of the abdomen into the chest cavity or other parts of the body. And so treatment is challenging and cancer cells can evade the tra- the traditional treatments of surgery and chemotherapy and the disease often recurs. So while I can get someone can get into remission with our traditional therapies, their risk of it coming back and then not being curable is quite high. Dr. Corzine, has any a woman, a female, ever come into your office and and you said to yourself, I bet she's got ovarian cancer? And if so, what was it about the, the history or maybe your examination that made you suspect that? I've had it on my differential before, and actually I have yet to diagnose ovarian cancer. Um, I've That's thought about recurrence. Exactly. Yeah. Although the, the woman who is postmenopausal, who is perhaps, you know, late 50s, early 60s, who has new bloating or new early satiety that's being full shortly after eating and really hadn't had this symptom before. So that kind of raises my feelers a little bit. And the main thing that I want to do is not ignore those types of symptoms and say, oh, we should look into this. And so I'll usually order, for example, pelvic ultrasound. Yeah. And that's really important. And like you said, I think it's becoming more common in the public discourse Mm -hmm. to know about these symptoms. But I, I think there's a lot of people who didn't even know there were symptoms of ovarian cancer. A lot of patients come to me and say, well, if I have so much cancer, why don't I have pain? Or why don't I have more symptoms? And I think patients then, the lack of symptoms, the lack of sort of screening tests that have shown anything, then also lead to the sense of shock when they say, well, I was just healthy and doing my normal life, and turns out I have an advanced cancer. But there's plenty of room for the ovarian cancer to grow in the abdomen before it actually pushes on anything enough that it causes symptoms, right? Exactly right. So yeah. when you talk about treatment, um, you they come to you with a diagnosis. How do you outline the options and how do you and the patient decide what's best for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know... If we're talking about just advanced ovarian cancer, which is the majority of patients, so patients who are stage 3C or 4, which means that the disease has left the pelvis and has spread throughout the abdomen and sometimes into the chest cavity, Mm. I tell patients that, for the most part, treatment is a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. And there are some nuances on how we decide, do we do surgery first? We call that primary cytoreductive surgery, meaning surgery that goes in and tries to take out as much of the tumor as possible. And then we follow that with chemotherapy. So that's option one. A second option is to start with chemotherapy, let the tumor shrink, do surgery, and then do some more chemotherapy after. Of course, there's always the option where there might be a patient who says, I I don't want to treat this. Mm -hmm. You know, I have an advanced cancer. I've lived my life. And, And it's a pretty rare case, but it's important that patients know, you know, when you get a diagnosis like this, 
and you feel really robbed of your control, that really you are still the person who gets to make decisions about your health and your body. And there are some patients who will choose not to do any treatment. So what are some of the factors that are within a patient's control, for example, what they eat or how active they are that might actually influence the treatment or how they respond to treatments? Yeah, and, and this is the area we look at a lot. So the, the thing is, what I always tell patients is for everything we do, there's risks and benefits, especially for surgery. You know, there are a lot of risks with surgery, but there's a lot of benefit. We think that if we can get someone to the operating room and take out as much disease as possible, upfront as the first step that we can lead to the longest benefit from a survival standpoint. So the longest survival, but there's a cost to that surgery. This is highly complicated surgery. It includes operating in all four quadrants of the abdomen, meaning I'm going to, it's not just doing a hysterectomy, but it's often doing complicated surgery up around the liver, around the spleen, in the upper part of the abdomen. It usually requires a bowel resection. Sometimes these surgeries can last six to eight hours with a high rate of blood loss. And so that being said, it's also very effective surgery. And so there's two things that I look at. Number one, I want to make sure I can do a meaningful surgery. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go into the operating room and then leave the operating room having put someone through a lot of risk and a lot of surgery without being able to take out the majority of disease. Mm -hmm. So the first is I want to make sure, is her disease resectable? Can I take out the most amount of disease that I can? The second question is, is she fit enough for surgery? Mm -hmm. Because there are a high risk of complications, and so we want to avoid complications. And we also want to make sure that if you were to have a complication, you can recover from Mm -hmm. that complication. So we look at lots of factors. It's not a perfect science, but we look at things like age, you know, how old is the person? Um, We look at the albumin, and that is a nutritional marker, Mm -hmm. and it can be very affected by cancer and the fluid that develops in the abdomen. We look at their other comorbidities, Mm -hmm. so other medical history that they have, like heart disease or clots in their leg and lungs and how that influences their overall being. We look at their weight, and then we also look at their functional status. Mm-hmm. You know, how fit is the patient? Does she do all of her activities? Does she walk around? Or has the disease caused a lot of debilitation? Is this someone who really can't even get out of bed and mm-hmm. can't really function? If they can't function, it's going to be really hard to get through a big surgery. A lot of factors to consider. Now, I know you have a particular interest in sarcopenia and the effect it has on a patient's prognosis. Tell us what sarcopenia is. Yeah, so this is a new area. So sarcopenia is a loss of skeletal muscle mass along with a loss of physical function. And so it represents something that is age-related and it's cancer-related, but it's not a perfect correlation. And we're interested in seeing how do patients' muscle mass uh, affect their overall outcomes, and then how can we influence that muscle mass and potentially change outcomes. All right, ovarian cancer, it's often diagnosed late. Less than 50% of women live for five years after a diagnosis. A thorough assessment of the patient is absolutely necessary to to determine the appropriate treatment plan and maintaining good muscle strength, avoiding sarcopenia, and good nutrition can improve the prognosis in women with late-stage disease, which unfortunately most of them are. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic gynecologic surgeon Dr. Monica Kumar. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss asthma in adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Asthma. It can happen at any time during your life. Now, for some people, they get it as a child and they have it forever. For others who have had it as a child, it may get better during puberty, but then it can come back later in life. And yet, for some, asthma may not develop until they're adults. How does that happen? Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic allergy and asthma expert, Dr. James Lee. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Lee. Great to be here. Dr. Lee, good to see you. Asthma can strike at any age. Tell us about that. Well, Tom, you got it right. So asthma can't start in childhood. It can come and go. So the adults that we see with asthma sometimes have had asthma since childhood, but others uh, can develop asthma in adulthood. So even adults who have never had a breathing problem, never had asthma before, as an adult can show up with asthma. Well, that would be correct. And uh, we think the asthma develops as a combination with genetics, environment, and infection. Um, We do see a lot of children with asthma, but adults with asthma can have asthma start in midlife or even later in life. So tell us, when we use the term asthma, what actually do we mean? What really happens inside the lung? Well, honestly, there are probably different forms of asthma, but the word is used to describe a lung condition that involves the airways or the bronchial tubes. And the characteristic of asthma, Tom, is that the bronchial tubes are extra sensitive. Uh, They can become inflamed and narrowed, and that can cause shortness of breath, wheezing, and other asthma symptoms. Shortness of breath, wheezing, what what else might a patient experience? Well, sometimes cough, uh, sensation of chest tightness, that would be typical. And also there's this, uh, isn't there an overproduction or secretion of, of mucus, thick mucus, that can also contribute to the difficulty breathing? That can be a big factor for, for many patients. So uh, cough, whether it, it's a non-productive or a productive cough, can be a part of asthma as well. You know, is this the body overreacting for some reason? Well, that can be part of it. I think we sort of think of the condition as an inflammatory condition involving the airway, so it's inflammation. Uh, The reactions can occur because there are asthma triggers that can cause the bronchospasm or the narrowing of the bronchial tubes. Uh, Often we think about uh, allergy-causing substances Mm -hmm. like cats or dogs or mold, other triggers could be just environmental smoke. A smoky room or a restaurant can do it, too. So a lot of things that we could potentially have some control over. So thinking about smoking or not being in smoke or pets. Tell us about some of the ways to treat asthma. Well, we always try to identify the specific triggers for an individual patient with an mm-hmm. asthma, Elizabeth. And once those triggers are identified for a particular patient, then we can logically and mm-hmm. reasonably give them advice about what to avoid. The point being, if we, we don't ask people to avoid substances that are not triggered for them personally. Sure. I, I wanted to ask you one other thing about the uh, symptoms uh, in the disease itself. Uh, because wheezing, uh, coughing, shortness of breath is one thing, but an asthma attack, even maybe your first one, can be life-threatening, can it? it asthma attacks can be life-threatening. Sometimes it's the first one, but some. But often it's not the first one. It's someone who has, ha- has known asthma, perhaps, and has had asthma attacks in the past, and then they experience the one big one. You mm-hmm. forgot their inhaler, or, or how does it happen? Well, I mean, uh, are, are well, these inhalers really effective? <laughs> the inhalers can be helpful. For, mm-hmm. for people who we see with asthma, we always review you know, what, how to recognize an impending asthma attack mm-hmm. and how to deal with it. So. Ideally, patients are diagnosed or they have a plan. We call it an yeah. asthma action plan so they know what to do. 
For other people, though, maybe they don't have a plan, maybe they don't have medications, or maybe it's just a major asthma attack that really requires hospital treatment. We try to make it really, really simple for patients thinking about that asthma action plan. So talk about the green zone when they're Mm -hmm. Mm well-controlled, the yellow zone when they're maybe starting to get in a little bit of trouble. Maybe they went over to a friend's house who has a cat. Mm -hmm. What would you do in that situation? Or the red zone, which are those really scary moments where you're needing more emergency-type medications. The asthma action action plan really should be individualized to the patient. Mm -hmm. So some action plans are pretty simple. It's Mm -hmm. who to call, when to call 911, possibly when to use your rescue inhaler or when to use some oral prednisone. Even when they come to you as an adult, is this a fairly easy diagnosis to make? Well, sometimes it's pretty easy and straightforward. There's a sort of a prototypic type of asthma presentation, someone who has shortness of breath, wheezing, may be triggered by cold or exercise. If they have an inhaler and they use it from time to time and it seems to help, maybe they have some seasonal allergies too or asthma in the family, then many physicians can make that diagnosis. Uh, Usually it's confirmed with laboratory testing like breathing tests. There are other situations in adults, especially Mm -hmm. where there's chest pain, some trouble breathing, uh, but it's not so clear. So we think, well, could it be another, you know, lung condition? Do they smoke? Could they have a heart condition? So sometimes it's not that simple, Tom. So when we talk about uh, treatment for asthma patients, uh, we all know about inhalers because we've seen people use them. But you also have medications that you can use. And how do you decide who needs what? Right. So there's actually a growing repertoire of asthma treatments for patients. And we still really use a lot of the asthma inhalers. And I think your listeners will want to know that there are inhalers that I guess we call asthma controllers that we Mm -hmm. instruct patients to use every single day to quiet down that inflammation in the bronchial tubes. And then there's the albuterol inhaler that's sometimes called a rescue inhaler that's used as needed or for asthma attacks. There are also pills for asthma. Mm -hmm. Um, There are injections for different kinds of injections for asthma. There's steroid medicines Mm -hmm. for asthma. Most physicians, especially specialists, uh, have those treatments available. And, you know, one principle that we try to apply, Tom, is we want to get the right medicine for the treatment for the patient. But generally, that might mean the least amount of medicine for asthma that leads to excellent control of their symptoms. Do you see patients with yeah, asthma course. and, and follow up? Yeah. And I would say one of the most important things that I try to convey to people that are on slightly more complicated regimens than just the inhaler as needed is that the medicine that they are using to control their asthma may not make them feel better that day. And so it's really important that we're using it to control the symptoms overall so they have fewer of these big exacerbations or asthma attacks. Well, That's an excellent point because a a lot of our management time and effort with patients is is trying to prevent problems, Mm -hmm. and preventive management doesn't always feel good at the time because you're trying to prevent symptoms, prevent Mm -hmm. attacks. And these medicines can often be very expensive for patients, and so it Sometimes I find that patients are trying to save them. And so what I tell them is, look, this is going to be a lot cheaper than the hospital cost if you are uncontrolled and have to come in and be seen multiple times or even in an emergency setting. Is asthma seasonal at all? You you mentioned cold as a potential trigger. Do you see more cases of asthma in Minnesota in the winter? So asthma often is seasonal, and and it can be seasonal for different reasons, right? So one type of seasonal asthma is is if someone has allergies and the spring pollen Mm -hmm. or the fall ragweed pollen kicks in, then they may have more asthma during that time of year. 
there's the cold air in you know the in Minnesota mm-hmm. where if someone's out there shoveling snow, their asthma may well be triggered during that activity because of the cold and the exercise. And then there's cold season, meaning catching cold season. <laughs> so catching a cold is a major trigger for asthma. All right, Dr. James Lee, an asthma expert at the Mayo Clinic. Obviously, asthma, I guess, can strike at any right. age. Even adults who have never had asthma before can get it later in life. Asthma can be caused or triggered by multiple factors, and there are multiple ways to treat it. As we've just heard, there are inhalers, medications, which you can give either by mouth or intravenously. And obviously, if you do have asthma, it's important to stay in touch with your doctor and follow up. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic asthma and allergy expert, Dr. James Lee. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.